Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright, Constable, and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by Mr. George Bacharach. George, say hello to everyone. Hello to everybody. It's been a while for George. He's been away. I like to start each episode by thanking everyone for their support. We really appreciate that. And we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We, uh, we also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. When you like or share a post, it lets all the Surety folks in, in your uh, feeds uh, that follow you see the post so they can join in. Of course, if you uh, miss a live presentation, you can listen to a recording at multiple locations on the Surety Today page on our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean to search for Surety Today and our microsite at uh, suretytoday.net. If you have any suggestions for future topics, interviews, or improvements, please let us know. Uh, As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid that background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to George to introduce our topic today, which is the surety and Chapter 11 bankruptcy plan release and injunction provisions. George? Good afternoon. Um, Today, Mike Stover and I will discuss the effect of Chapter 11 bankruptcy plan release and injunction provisions on the surety and the surety's rights to indemnity and collateral from the debtor and others. Because of the complex and stylized wording in some Chapter 11 bankruptcy plans and to make our lives easier, we have already provided you with examples of such provisions in our surety today notice along with the definitions that relate to those provisions. Uh, It would be very helpful for you to have those examples in front of you during this presentation. We don't intend to examine those definitions or provisions in detail. Rather, we will discuss the concepts that those provisions address, how they may affect the surety and its rights, and what the surety may do to combat those provisions. We will use two situations one subdivision bond case and one commercial surety bond case to highlight how the plan release and injunction provisions may affect the surety's rights and liabilities. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. So I'm going to briefly talk about Chapter 11 and and then Chapter 11 plans sort of generally. The, The reorganization of a corporation under the bankruptcy code is intended to strike a balance between the need of a corporate debtor in financial hardship to be made economically sound and the desire to preserve creditors and stockholders' legal rights to the extent possible. Thus, the Chapter 11 reorganization is a complex exercise of legal procedure, corporate finance, and business management. Chapter 11 is based on the belief that it is generally preferable to enable a debtor to continue to operate and reorganize its financial affairs as a going concern rather than shut down the business and conduct a liquidation. Under Chapter 11, there's a presumption that the debtor's business will continue to operate and that the debtor will remain in possession after the entry of an order for relief. 
These presumptions assure the debtor considerable control over plan negotiations. Upon commencement of a case, all, all of the debtor's property becomes property of the bankruptcy estate. The debtor and the property are protected by the automatic stay in bankruptcy. The debtor in possession is given the ability to use, sell, or lease property of the estate, even if the property is subject to the interest of a creditor after offering adequate protection for such interest. The debtor in possession may assume or reject executory contracts or leases, and it may recover property transferred and avoid obligations pre-petition to the case in the same manner as the trustee in Chapter 7. Further, the U.S. trustee is required to appoint a committee of unsecured creditors and may appoint additional committees of creditors or equity security holders. Focusing on the reorganization plan, the hallmark of a Chapter 11 is flexibility. The debtor in possession is offered considerable discretion in the operation of the business, constrained generally only by the business judgment rule. The debtor is given 120 days to exclusively propose a plan, and that time period may be extended for up to 18 months. During this period, no other entity may propose a plan. The plan negotiation process is designed to lead to a consensual plan under, the debtor, under which the debtor and a majority of creditors have agreed to both business and financial plans that offer some realistic chance of success. The bankruptcy courts are given considerable discretion in evaluating the debtor's proposed use of property, offers of, prote of adequate protection, the debtor's proposed borrowing, and other business decisions. Under Section 1123 of the Code, a plan must classify claims and interests, such as a class for trade claims, a class for bonds, et cetera, specify any classes of claims or interests that are not impaired under the plan, specify the treatment of impaired classes, provide the same treatment for each member of a class unless a holder of a particular claim agrees to a less favorable treatment provide adequate means of implementing the plan and other provisions. Once a plan is filed with the court, the debtor must file a disclosure statement. The disclosure statement must contain adequate information to enable those who must vote on the plan to make an informed decision. The disclosure statement contains an explanation of the provisions of the plan, a description of how the plan will be implemented, financial forecasts, a discussion of tax consequences, and other issues. The creditors vote on the plan, and the court must confirm the plan if the requirement of Section 1129A are met. And these requirements include that the plan was proposed in good faith, that each creditor or equity interest holder have accepted the plan or be entitled to receive at least what it would receive in a Chapter 7 liquidation, and that each class has either accepted the plan or is not impaired under the plan. So that's a general overview of uh, Chapter 11 and the plan, and I'm going to turn it over to George. One of the many plan provisions is the release and injunction provision that is in most plans. Now, to help explain the effect of a plan release and injunction provision on surety, we have provided you with examples. The examples actually address a number of other issues that we have omitted from the examples and won't discuss today. We will only review the plan release and injunction provisions. We have included with the plan release and injunction provision certain definitions, some of which are statutory and are found in the bankruptcy code, and some of which are defined in the plan. Simply stated, when you look at the example, under Article 9C of the plan and the examples heading releases by holders of claims, it says, as of the effective date of the confirmed plan, each releasing party releases and discharges each released party from any and all claims and causes of action. 
The examples and the defined terms provide answers to the following three questions. Question one, is the surety a defined releasing party? And the answer is yes, it is. The surety is within the definition of a holder of claims. The surety holds claims against the debtor at common law, in equity, and under the indemnity agreement. Therefore, as a holder of claims, the surety is a defined releasing party under the plan release provision. Question number two, who is the surety releasing? As a releasing party, the surety under the plan is releasing the released party or released parties as defined in the plan. Included within the defined term release parties are many entities, whether they exist before or after the filing of the bankruptcy proceeding or before or after the effective date of the confirmed plan. And these include entities created or affiliated with the debtor, the reorganized debtor, and other entities such as the debtor's pre-petition lender, the DIP lender during the debtor's Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceeding, or even a subsequent post-petition lender to the reorganized debtor after the confirmation of the plan. So the surety is a releasing party, releasing the release parties. What is the surety releasing? The surety as a releasing party is releasing each release party from all claims and causes of action to enforce the surety's rights and remedies for any of the surety's claims. In addition to the above releases, the plan injunction provision in Article 9E enjoins a releasing party from enforcing its rights against a released party. A releasing party attempting to enforce its rights against a released party may be liable for violating the plan injunction provision as approved in the confirmation order and entered by the bankruptcy court. Before we look in, look at the effect on the surety in certain circumstances with respect to who the surety is releasing, what claims and causes of action the surety is releasing, and the injunctions against the surety taking action against the release party, the next questions are whether such plan release and injunction provisions are legally valid in a debtor's plan, and under what circumstances will they be approved and enforced by bankruptcy courts in the plan confirmation order. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Uh, all right, so as George just noted, one question to consider is whether a broad plan release and injunction are legally valid in a debtor's plan. What we're focusing on today is the release and injunction provisions of a reorganization plan that are so broad that they purport to release claims of a third party against another third party. We all understand that, generally speaking, under the bankruptcy code, the bankruptcy courts have fairly broad powers to deal with claims against debtors. But what about a release of a claim of a third-party obligee, for example, against a bond issued by a surety of the debtor? The surety and the obligee generally are not parties in the bankruptcy. Generally, the Supreme Court has noted that a bankruptcy court has jurisdiction over a debtor's property and the disposition of that property. But third-party claims belong to third parties, not the estate. Thus, as a general rule, the bankruptcy court typically has no power to say what happens to property that belongs to a third party, even if that party is a creditor or otherwise is a party in interest. Section 524E of the Bankruptcy Code specifically states that discharge of a debt of the debtor does not affect the liability of any other entity on or the property of any other entity for such debt. Moreover, the Bankruptcy Code provides that a bankruptcy court lacks the power to confirm plans of reorganization which do not comply with applicable provisions of the Bankruptcy Code. That's uh, Section 1129. 
Given the general law and code provisions, it would seem that broad releases and injunction provisions affecting the rights between third parties would not be permissible. However, Section 105A of the code provides that the court may issue any order, process, or judgment that is necessary or appropriate to carry out the provisions of the title. Some courts seize upon Section 105 of the code as authority to implement such broad release and injunction provisions. Other courts recognize that Section 105 does not provide power to issue orders that are inconsistent with the other provisions of the code, such as Section 524E. Thus, there's a split among the circuits on the issue of whether bankruptcy courts can release third parties from claims held by other third parties in connection with a debtor's reorganization plan. Some circuits, such as the 5th, 9th, and 10th circuits, have held that third-party releases are categorically beyond the power of a bankruptcy court. Other, other circuits, such as the 6th, 2nd, 4th, and 11th, have held that such plan releases are permissible under certain circumstances, recognizing that such provisions are only proper in unusual, extraordinary, or rare circumstances. The Third Circuit has indicated that it may be willing to allow for such releases, but the court expressly declined to establish its own rules regarding the conditions under which the releases would be permitted. Thus, the split among the circuits occupies a narrow spectrum between, no, you can't do it, and it's very rare, and it's an exception. The leading decision on this subject permitting the release of third-party claims against non-debtors is the Sixth Circuit opinion in Class 5 Nevada claimants versus Dow Corning Corp., the uh, in Ray Dow Corning case. In that case, the court held that while such releases were not categorically prohibited by the Bankruptcy Code, such provisions remain an exception, not the rule. The court stated such measures are dramatic and should be, cautious and should be used cautiously and that enjoining a non-consenting creditor's claim is only appropriate in unusual circumstances. To analyze whether a broad release and injunction, injunction provision in plan should be approved, the Dow Corning Court held that such non-consensual provisions may be appropriate if seven factors that it created were present. These factors have been adopted by many of the other circuits that permit such provisions. Generally, the factors look at whether there's a, an identity of interest between the debtor and the third party, usually an indemnity relationship such that a suit against the non-debtor is in essence a suit against the debtor or will deplete the assets of the estate. The second factor is that the non-debtor has contributed substantial assets to the reorganization. The injunction is essential to, a third factor is the injunction is essential to reorganization. Namely, the reorganization hinges on the debtor being free from indirect suits against parties who would have indemnity or contribution claims against the debtor. Factor four, the impacted class or classes have overwhelmingly voted to accept the plan. Factor five, the plan provides a mechanism to pay for all or substantially all of the class or classes affected by the injunction. Factor six, the plan provides an opportunity for the claimants who choose not to settle to recover in full. And seven, that the court has made specific factual findings in support of the release provisions. In performing the research, it becomes clear that the cases typically involving these, these broad release, third-party release provisions are cases like the Dalcon Shield or asbestos litigation where there's huge amounts of claimants and third parties have put in hundreds of millions of dollars into trusts or funds to address the claims. In those types of situations, uh, these, some of these courts are saying that, that you, can, um, you, know, you can use these broad release provisions. Despite the, uh, the seemingly narrow circumstances under which broad release and injunction provisions are permitted, however, 
um, you, you find these provisions in a lot of plans. And sometimes they're, they're contingent on, on being, uh, having accepted or approved the plan. So let's look at next a cautionary tale, as I call it. Um, if a plan of reorganization has been confirmed and it has a broad release and injunction provision, the surety must be extremely careful to determine exactly what the scope of the provisions are, whether the surety is included and whether the surety's actions post-confirmation comply with the provisions. The case of Inray Kimball Hill, Inc., out of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of Illinois, provides the cautionary tale. In that case, the surety was found liable for breaching the confirmed plan's release and injunction provisions and was ordered to pay over $9.5 million in damages just this past January. There are multiple decisions in this matter regarding the, the case and the facts, and they're very long and complicated. I'll try to summarize. But essentially, the surety wrote a series of subdivision bonds for its principal, Kimball Hill, which was the developer of several subdivisions in various jurisdictions. Kimball entered into annexation agreements with the municipalities having jurisdiction over the subdivision, and these agreements contained terms and conditions under which the subdivision development would proceed pursuant to Illinois code, and these agreements were then recorded in the land records. In April 2008, Kimball filed a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The surety filed proofs of claim in the bankruptcy. In 2009, the court confirmed a plan of liquidation. The plan and the confirmation order discharged and released all claims of parties that voted in favor of the plan against the debtors specifically, providing that holders of claims and interests voting to accept the plan have conclusively and irrevocably released and discharged the debtors and a whole host of other entities, and all were defined as the released parties, quote unquote, from any and all claims, interests, obligations, rights, suits, damages, causes of action, etc of whatsoever nature, whether known or unknown, foreseen or unforeseen, existing or hereafter arising in law, equity, or otherwise, that such, in, such entity would have been legally entitled to assert. So basically, you released everything, and even stuff that you didn't know about and stuff that hasn't even come, come about yet. Uh, so the surety voted in favor of the plan. It was thus bound by the terms of the release. In furtherance of the release, both the plan and the confirmation order contained the broad injunction stating that all entities who have held claims or interests that have been released are permanently enjoined from commencing or continuing any action or other proceeding of any kind on account of or in connection with or in respect to any claim or interest that was released or settled. So the plan created, a, ultimately then created a trust for, for post-confirmation administration of the bankruptcy estate known as the KHI trust. And all or substantially all the debtors remain assets were placed in the trust. And then the trust, um, Ultimately, um, well, let's see, hold on. But the, the trust that success, was a successor to the debtor and, and was entitled to the benefit of the release and the plan injunction. So that was clear. Uh, the plan provided the rights, benefits, and obligations of any entity named or referred in the plan shall be binding on and shall inure to the benefit of any heir, executor, administrator, successor, or assigned affiliate, et cetera, of each entity. As a result of, the indemn as a result of this, the indemnity agreements uh, that were issued by the debtor in favor of, of the uh, uh, surety were no longer, no longer bind, binding or bound the, um, the, the debtor. The annexation agreements, however, ran with, the land, ran with the land, and so they remained binding. The trust agreed to sell all of its right title and interest in the bond subdivisions to uh, JNI LLC. JNI LLC subsequently sold the bond properties to an entity known as TRG. 
During the plan, several of the municipalities sought relief from the injunction to enforce uh, their rights against the surety to enforce the annexation agreements. The surety, the debtor, and the municipalities entered into stipulations that were approved by the bankruptcy court, allowing the municipality to declare the debtor in default, proceed against the surety, and establish the liability of the debtor solely for the purposes of claiming against the bond. Um, the municipalities filed separate lawsuits uh, against the surety for each, each development, and um, the surety then added TRG to the suits as a successor in interest to the debtor, uh, the principal on the bonds. TRG moved for dismissal, and the suits uh, dismissal was granted in most of the cases, but appeals were filed. And while the state court litigation was pending, TRG then filed a motion in the bankruptcy alleging that the surety had violated the plan and confirmation order injunction and release by asserting claims against TRG in the state court. In response to the TRG motion, the surety asserted various arguments and essentially was contending that, um, that, that, that it had common law indemnity rights against TRG, which arose under the bonds, which it contended were not, um, were not held to be invalid or released under the, under the bankruptcy. In any event, the court found that the surety was aware of the release and injunction, obviously, and, and that, um, um, and then the surety admitted or agreed that TRG was um, a successor to or a sign of the debtor through the KHI trust, was entitled to the benefit of the release and injunction. So the court looked at the surety's arguments and basically said, look, those are either the future, the future rights arising under the indemnity agreement that you're asserting, which violates the plan, or, um, or TRG itself is subject to the plan and, and you violated the, the plan and the release provisions that way. So it held a separate damage hearing and awarded $9.5 million in damages, which included $1.2 million in attorney's fees and $7.7 million in lost property value. So that case, that case makes clear that you have to be very careful what you're doing when a reorganization plan with, with one of these broad uh, release and injunction provisions is applicable. Okay, George. On the side, in Mike's case that he just discussed, the, the released party was somebody that was not even named in the bankruptcy plan didn't release exist. and injunction provision, what well, didn't even exist at the time. Uh, the case, the, the situation I'm about to discuss, that entity did exist. Uh, what I'd like to address are the issues from a recent large commercial surety bankruptcy case where the debtor's plan contained the very release and injunction provisions that we have provided to you in our examples, and the surety held an irrevocable and unconditional letter of credit as collateral for the issuance of the surety bonds. The surety's concern when it saw the plan release and injunction provisions became what are the effect of those provisions on a surety's rights to draw on the letter of credit and enforce its rights against the lender, the issuer of the letter of credit? The questions were, will the surety as a releasing party be able to draw on the letter of credit after the plan is confirmed and the plan release and injunction provisions become effective? The next question is if the debtor's lender, the issuer of the letter of credit and a named release party has been released of any claims, will the surety's attempt to draw on the letter of credit after the plan is confirmed be determined to be a surety claim against a released party? 
And if it is, and the lender refuses to pay the surety's draw under the letter of credit, has the surety released its cause of action against the lender? And will the surety be enjoined from instituting a cause of action to enforce the surety's rights to payment by the lender under the letter of credit? Under those circumstances, the surety may have a legal right to payment under the letter of credit. However, the surety may have no means to enforce its rights and seek a remedy for the lender's breach of its obligations to pay under the letter of credit. By following a cause of action to enforce its rights and remedies under the letter of credit, the surety may face a lender's defense of release and addition potential damages for violation of the plan injunction provision, as has happened in Mike's case. Now, assuming that the letter of credit is unconditional and the surety has the right to draw on the letter of credit and the surety wants to preserve its rights to its collateral, there are two possibilities. The surety may negotiate language with the debtor to protect the surety's rights to draw on the letter of credit at any time, including after confirmation of the plan. Or the surety may draw on the letter of credit prior to the confirmation of the plan and avoid any debtor arguments that the surety has released its rights against the letter of credit and the letter and the lender under the confirmed plan release and injunction provisions. Now you may say that the surety why not draw, but the surety may face pushback and opposition from the debtor and the others, i.e. an agent, for drawing on the letter of credit, especially if there are no open claims against the surety bond. Furthermore, the surety may face the debtor's claims that the surety is holding excess proceeds from the letter of credit, namely more collateral than is necessary for the surety to avoid risk and exposure to loss under the bonds, which is an issue that we've addressed in other surety today presentations. But the surety may have no other option if appropriate language is not agreed upon to protect the surety's rights to draw on the letter of credit at some future time including after the confirmation of the plan. The next questions are what is the appropriate language and whether it belongs in the plan or the confirmation order. There is no language that will fit every case, but the following concepts must be considered. And as discussed soon, they should be placed in the confirmation order and not the plan itself to preserve the surety's rights. First, Concept, the surety must retain and must not waive any of its claims, rights, abilities, or protections under the letter of credit and against the lender, which I will now refer to as the surety's rights. Second, none of the surety's rights shall be released, changed, modified, or amended under any provision of the plan, any plan supplement, or the confirmation order. Namely, some loose language that may appear in some other document or bankruptcy court filing can't be allowed to affect the surety's rights as set forth in any agreed language in the confirmation order. Third, there must be and needs to be a description of the paper trail concerning the issue or the issuer of and the lender under the letter of credit. Assuming that the letter of credit was issued by the pre-petition lender to the debtor, there needs to be language that describes whether the debt, the, the debtor in possession lender, during the debtor's Chapter 11 proceeding has assumed the pre-petition lender's obligations under the letter of credit and whether the pre-petition lender has then been released to those obligations under the DIP financing order. Namely, have the surety's rights under the pre-petition letter of credit become the obligation of a different lender, the DIP lender? 
Then continuing up the chain, will the dip lender's obligations be assumed by the post-petition lender to the reorganized debtor after the confirmation of the plan? Furthermore, will that assumption release the dip lender and make the post-petition lender to the reorganized debtor liable for and subject to the surety's rights under the letter of credit? The appropriate language that is drafted must connect the dots to make certain that the surety's rights either continue through the full chain of lenders or be the liability of the lender that eventually gets stuck with the obligations to pay the surety under the letter of credit. Fourth, the reorganized debtor may want to replace the original letter of credit with a new letter of credit after the effective date of the confirmation order. The surety should require the specific terms and the necessity of the surety's consent for any such post-confirmation replacement of the surety's original letter of credit. While the plan sets forth the debtor's contractual obligations to its creditors, the language in the confirmation order governs and controls over the language of the plan if there are conflicts, inconsistencies, or ambiguities between the confirmation order and the plan. Therefore, the language protecting the surety's rights must be in the confirmation order and not in the plan. More importantly, the language should state that no provision of the plan or any other provision contained in the confirmation order shall change or modify the letter of credit language agreed upon by the surety and the debtor and contained in the confirmation order. Procedurally, if the surety's letter of credit is going to be assumed after the effective date of the confirmation order by a post-petition lender to the reorganized debtor, the debtor should give notice to the surety of that fact in either or both the notice of the entry of the confirmation order or the notice of the effective date of the confirmed plan. When you go back over the examples that we have given you in the full text of the plan release and injunction provisions, which are essentially long run-on sentences that include the proverbial kitchen sink of release parties and release claims, causes of action, transaction, and events, it becomes clear that a surety does not want to be in the position of later having to argue after the confirmation of the plan whether the surety can draw on the letter of credit if it incurs losses under the bonds and the indemnity agreement. There are too many documents to review and too many angles and arguments that can be raised to contend that the surety has no ability to assert its rights to draw under the letter of credit after the confirmation of the plan. Therefore, we provide the two options discussed above. The surety either draws on the letter of credit prior to the entry of the order confirmation that could eventually prevent the surety from a later draw on the letter of credit because the plan confirms the release and injunction provisions, or negotiate language to be put in the confirmation order, clarifying and protecting the surety's rights in the letter of credit and the surety's ability to draw on the letter of credit proceeds after confirmation of the plan. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Well, that's, uh, that does it for us today. And uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, January 13th at 1230. George and I will kick off the new year with a Surety Case Law Review. Upcoming events in the surety industry, the Philadelphia Surety Claims will hold its lunch meeting on January 15th at uh, Maggiano's in Philadelphia. And of course, the ABA FSLC will hold its midwinter meeting January 28th through the 30th in New York City. I'll be leading a panel discussion on financing, so I hope to see all of you there. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. We look forward to speaking with you again next month. And we wish everyone happy holidays and a happy new year. Now let me unmute the lines. Okay. Do you have any questions? A lot, a lot of material covered in <laughs> short period of time. If there's one takeaway from this whole presentation is if there is a debtor proposed plan and it contains release and injunction provisions, you got to read them. Uh, because uh, they may be clear on their face that they're trying to affect your rights, or they may not be clear on their face, and they could still affect the surety's rights. And so you just can't let those things slide by and think, well, I've got a claim in the bankruptcy, I should be fine because I can go after all these other people. Um, we took a minute or two to take a look at other bonds and situations uh, and the easiest one to look at is really the contract bond situation. If the principal corporation's plan uh, of reorganization has a uh, release and injunction provision that releases its officers, directors, you know, people like that, and they happen to be your indemnitors, you may have just released your indemnitors if you don't take some action to uh, get them out of the release by the debt because there's a prime example of where a surety has, it's a third-party surety has third-party rights against non-debtor indemnitors who happen to be officers and directors of a debtor, and those release provisions will, are intended to release those uh, officers and directors, namely your indemnitors. So this is not, this is a real situation that you have to be with. Okay, anybody, questions? All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for uh, calling in and listening, and we hope to talk to everybody next month. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.